0: Good morning, Christ Community family. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, Spirit, illuminate your word that we would uh, understand it clearly, that it, uh, it would have conviction in our life that we would be transformed by God. Uh, we want to be uh, a church that, that um, proclaims your name Uh, that is a demonstration of your good and loving name, that that we would uh, declare the gospel and be transformed by it, God. That's our prayer as we go to your word today. Amen. Slave is, is an ugly and brutal word. It's the worst of human history. It's a permanent scar of shame. It's abuse and it's racism and it's greed. It's violence and humiliation committed against God's image bearers. Men, women, and children were were dehumanized so that they could be treated like property, so that they could be treated like intelligent beasts for the convenience and the comfort of others. It's evil. And it's still happening. It's estimated that today there are over 27 million people in the world who are subject to slavery. And this includes forced labor, the sex trade, inheritable property. So, when in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, new atheist Sam Harris says, in assessing the moral wisdom of the Bible, it is useful to consider moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instructions do we get from the God of Abraham on this subject? Consult the Bible and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. He goes on and he he actually quotes our passage from 1 Timothy 6 as an example. Now, my son, Logan, uh, came up to me recently after reading through his U.S. history book, and uh, he was reading on slavery, and and he was wide-eyed and in disbelief, and he said, Dad, were people really treated like that? Were people really regarded as property? And uh, he cited uh, evil act after evil act. And I said, yeah, actually, yeah, they were. And if that is what the Bible is talking about, if that is what is going on, is being condoned, then as Christians, we have a problem. Today, I want us to know that, that a proper understanding of slavery in the Bible is necessary to understanding a right relationship with others— our vocation in Christ. And so, the first question we have to ask is, is are Sam Harris and others, are they correct in their claim that God and the Bible condone slavery? In fact, the Bible does not specifically condemn the practice of slavery. It gives, gives instructions on how slaves are to be treated, but does not outlaw slavery altogether. But here is why. Let me start by saying that I also uh, absolutely believe that what is called chattel slavery, like the kind we're most familiar with in, in the pre-war, uh, pre-Civil War South, in, in the antebellum America, is absolutely, and I'll use, I'll use Harris's word there, is an abomination. That's a biblical word, and it's a word that means abhorrent or disgusting to, to God, to Yahweh. And I believe that that is true. The reality is that the Bible has no support for antebellum slavery. And the New Testament encourages practices and beliefs which would actually undermine this type of chattel slavery. Now, there are four main differences between the chattel slavery of the antebellum South and, and this kind of indentured servitude of a bondservant described in the Bible. Now, the first difference is, is the motivation. And the motivation behind the pre-Civil War slavery in the U.S. was absolutely economic gain. Slaves were taken so that their masters would have a better life. But in biblical slavery, the primary motive was often for economic relief. It was a better life for the servant. And so who could have um, these servants sometimes had a surprising level of both uh, legal or maybe social status, as well as not simply being laborers, but sometimes being doctors or lawyers. If someone was poor and couldn't pay their debts, They would sell their property, and if necessary, they would sell themselves. Uh, Leviticus 25 verses 35 through 37 says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money, you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. And so if someone is without property or without food, they could indenture themselves and get immediate food and shelter. Essentially, they would be, they would be given a job with a room and a board, and they could earn enough to be self-sufficient again. The second difference is, is in the primary way in which, um, in which slaves entered into this type of antebellum slavery was, let's be honest, that dark-skinned Africans were, were taken captive against their will. And so they were simply kidnapped or they were, they were born into captivity um, through their captive parents. But the way in which people came to be slaves in the Bible was, was a lot, well, there was a lot of different ways. Uh, and in many ways, those, case, those were voluntary ways. So, for example, again, Jews who needed assistance or couldn't pay their debts, they might serve another voluntarily for a time. The rules for this kind of slavery are actually given in Scripture. Again, let's go to Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 to 15. It says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And so that's not such a bad deal, and it's nothing like antebellum slavery. As well, there were very strict biblical laws uh, that kept Israelites from keeping fellow Jews as slaves against their will. Deuteronomy 24.7 says, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, some slaves were, were actually from the, um, from the making uh, reimbursing of a crime. If there was a crime committed, uh, again, there, there wasn't a, a prison system, a correctional facility system uh, then like we have today. And so criminals who needed to make restitution um, to fe- their fellow man or to God, uh, they were put into servitude. And so, Exodus 22, it states that if a man steals, he must repay four or five times what he has stolen. And if he can't do that, if he has no money, then he, should, then he would be sold into slavery uh, until he paid off that debt. Some slaves were the result of military conquests. And so, conquered nations were offered um, servitude to Israel if they agreed to a, a peace contract. And this type of servitude wasn't just this mass selling off of of people, but instead was a global condition of the entire community to be subservient to Israel. And so Israel, and then in fact, Israel was responsible then to protect them from other nations, from other enemies. Uh, So imagine the situation, Israel conquers a land and they don't kill everybody right? So, there are people still living, but they have no land, no possessions. They're in a similar situation to the indentured servant, although it might not have been any fault of their own. So, the question I think we need to look at next is, is how, uh, how were biblical slaves then treated? And the third difference is, is in how um, is exactly that, how people were treated as slaves. So, we're familiar with the, the brutal and often uh, horrible mistreatment of slaves that, that we are familiar with in the antebellum South. They were considered a low form of property and often treated as though they, were, they weren't even human. And so in contrast, the slavery described in the Bible was very different. Slaves were treated humanely because it was regulated by biblical law. Leviticus 25 says, "'You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, "'but shall fear your God. "'You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers.'" Uh, The people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And so slaves were often even released with their possessions, uh, plus additional money and supplies. Slaves were allowed religious privileges. They were commanded to rest on the Sabbath with everyone else. And masters were held responsible for the way in which they treated their slaves. Exodus 21 20 says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Now, I'm going to jump in here a moment. And uh, I'm making the case that that, that God's regulations on on what was oftentimes indentured servitude, um, again, we, we start hearing about discipline, you know, someone being beaten with a rod, and we go right back to this idea of antebellum slavery. It's like saying, don't think about a pink elephant, what are you thinking about, right? Uh, so especially when we, ha- when we get to this, uh, this uh, question of how to discipline your slave. But realize this, think about this. If you steal or you lie at your job, you may be reprimanded or demoted or even fired, uh, but, but you're never gonna be punished physically uh, outside of doing something illegal or being sued or being jailed. The worst that could happen to you is you're gonna be let go, so remember, a, the slave was indebted to the owner. They, they have, in some cases, been paid up front. Uh, they're taking care of them. They're giving them uh, a roof over their head until, they're, uh, until they work off that debt. And so the owner has taken risk and has invested in them. This is nothing like at-will employment that we, that we understand today, where if either party says we're done, we're done. You just walk away and B, corporal punishment was a reality and has been until very, very recently uh, in the United States. I'm I'm 48 years old and I remember in elementary school when uh, uh, if you got out of line, you got a SWAT. The principal had a paddle in his office, Uh, but that's unthinkable today. And so I'm not endorsing violence, but just remember that even though the law allowed for slaves to be punished, that the same punishment was prescribed for non-slaves. And so uh, we look at Proverbs ten thirteen. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Proverbs twenty six three says, "A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools." Proverbs thirteen twenty four says, "Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him." So. Slaves could actually be freed if they were not treated properly by their masters. And even foreign slaves uh, were given refuge under biblical law. They weren't treated as property. Slaves could actually be brought into the Jewish covenant and become Jewish believers alongside their masters. Genesis 17 verses 12 and 13 says, he uh, who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And so slaves had rights uh, within the homes of their masters and as part of their family. They had family rights and they could even share in that family's inheritance The last difference is how slaves were freed. Antebellum slaves had had little chance of ever being released, uh, um, ever been given a a life of freedom. But on the other hand, biblical slaves were free once their debt was paid. They paid it or a family member would pay it. uh, They would be purchased or they would just pay it off by by the work that they had done. And so Leviticus 25 uh, verses 47 through 49 says, if a stranger or sojourner within you uh, with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. Another interesting point, uh, if you're familiar with Jubilee, uh, is, is that slaves were also freed every seventh year and every fiftieth year? Uh, this national day of debt forgiveness called Jubilee. Now, when I was when I was 16 years old, uh, I really wanted an earring and I uh, uh, to get my ear pierced, and and um, I knew my parents w- were not for it. I, had, I hadn't asked them, but but I knew I knew. You just know. All right, uh, it was I think 1987. I had just gotten my driver's license, and my buddies had invited me to go to summer camp at the end of summer. And so this, this, I, had, I had it all worked out. I had a plan. Uh, I was going to go. I said goodbye to my parents, and then I drove, not to the church, but I drove down to the mall, because that's where you get your ear pierced uh, in, this, in the 80s. And um, I went to the mall and got my ear pierced, and then I went off to camp. Uh, and I got uh, one ear pierced because in the 80s that's what was cool, uh, and and you looked like a pirate, I guess. But uh, you would get, uh, and I got uh, what is it? I got, I got my um, yeah. So so I got my left ear pierced, and it mattered whether you got your left or right because well, it it kind of determined or, or displayed maybe your. Um, your, your sexual preference. And so anyways, I, we, there was, we knew that, that left was right and right was wrong. And so I got my left ear pierced. And so I go to, go to camp and have a great time. And I end up at camp actually um, making a profession of faith. And I got baptized in the, in the camp swimming pool. And so uh, as I'm talking about going home and knowing that I'm gonna have to take this earring out, uh, one of the camp counselors I was talking to, he was like, He's like, dude, that's like that that verse in like Deuteronomy, dude. And so that's kind of what I told my parents. And, and this, is the, this is actually the, the verse that I, that I shared with them. I, it's Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 and 17. And it says, But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. And so biblical slaves, they could choose to be with their masters. They could remain with them. There were occasions after having paid off their debt, they could remain with their master and his family because of their love for them. So they would wear a gold ring in their ear as a proclamation that they would forever be their slave to their master. And they realized that being an indentured servant was better than being on their own. And for me, that's, that's just the nail in the coffin with regard to the differences between antebellum slavery and the biblical slavery, that people would actually want to remain, see it as a better option, and stay forever with their masters. Old Testament texts, they're, they're historical documents. And so as such, they, must be in, they should be interpreted in history, right in their own historical context, and so the experience of a black slave in the Confederate States was n- was not the ex- the experience of the slave uh, in ancient Israel. Israel would never have tolerated the slavery uh, of the ancient of, of American pre-Civil War South, and so this and the slave states would have had, found no um, value, uh, no use for biblical slavery, and so it wasn't perfect. But but again, there's no comparison. And so it's not only bad hermeneutics, it's not not only a bad way to read and interpret the Bible, uh, but it's unfair to make a modern understanding and apply it to an ancient culture. And this is exactly what both um, uh, atheists or opponents of the faith do when they make this claim uh, that the Bible supports and condones slavery. But it's also exactly what those uh, who, who were pro-slavery uh, during the pre-Civil War era, era um, um, did as well with the Bible to support their position. So I know that was the longest intro ever, uh, but let's get into our text, into 1 Timothy uh, 6, verses 1 and 2. And it says, uh, go there with me, uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, "'Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have uh, believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefited by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things.'" And so the slaves or the bondservants in, in verses 1 and 2, they're, they're clearly Christians in the early church. And the difference is that in verse 2, we're, we're explicitly told uh, that the slave owner or master is a believer. And so it seems likely that in verse 1, he's, he's referring to uh, non-believers. So Paul's instructing Timothy in verse 1 that Christian slaves were to regard their owners as worthy of all honor, worthy of all respect. They were not just to show... Uh, respect or pay respect, but to respect uh, their masters as though they were worthy of all honor. And so uh, even, if, even if as slaves they were not, so even if as slaves they weren't treated with respect, they were to treat their masters and Im, as image bearers of God. Because as Christians, that's the insight that we're given. That's the revelation that we're given, is that God is the creator of all things And so, every person bears not only his design, but a design that is infused with aspects of God himself. And so, among these, I believe, are are our ability to be creative, uh, intelligence, our capacity to appreciate beauty, morality, that we are uh, both relational and spiritual beings. And their masters uh, were, were therefore made in the image of God, irrespective of their behavior, of how they treated them. And so why treat them with full honor? Well, Paul gives, he gives two reasons. He says, the reputation of God's name and the teaching of the apostles are at stake. And so Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so we are ambassadors for Christ. And Rick taught us last week that Christ is the ultimate example of how we're to honor others in truth and in grace. And so Christ saw those that he interacted with, uh, not simply as as fallen sinners, though though broken nonetheless, but, but also as image bearers with the potential for redemption and restoration as well. And so all three perspectives are necessary. As Christians, we are, we are representatives to the King. And through our lives, uh, God is making an appeal to others. So through our words and through our actions, uh, we speak and act in God's name, whether we realize it or not. So because of this uh, relational nature of the slave and the master, uh, Christian slaves had this unique opportunity to bring glory to God's name By their attitude in honoring their masters. Paul says his his role and the role of all believers is to be uh, messengers of Christ, bringing his gospel of hope, pleading that others would be made right with God through it. And this is part of the hope in having a a church covenant document. And and among being instructive and unifying and protective of the body of Christ, it's a reminder that how we live matters. And we are often the means by which God is known. And so, how we love and how we serve each other and how we serve others uh, to a watching world is a demonstration of a relationship with a loving God who sacrificed himself for us so that we, with grateful hearts, uh, would love and sacrifice for others. In verse 2, Paul instructs Timothy that, that Christian slaves were not to be we're not to take advantage of their Christian owners because they were believers. They weren't to take liberties or, or show less respect for them because they were brothers in Christ. And, and because Paul mentions it, it, it seems reasonable that this was happening in the early church. So, how do we apply these verses? We may not be slaves, but feel like them sometimes when we're given tedious or physical labor uh, that don't require any skill. We may feel like it when we're being uh, called to be a gopher, picking up maybe the boss's lunch or, uh, or coffee, um, when we aren't being used to our potential, when we aren't being encouraged to grow in, in learning new skills. We may feel like slaves when we're treated as insignificant or when work demands long hours away from family and friends or, or even sleep. We aren't slaves, but we know, uh, we know what the Bible would command us if we were. We're not slaves, but, but most of us are employees. And so the implication is that as Christians, we don't get to treat our bosses and companies with disrespect because they aren't believers. And we don't get to take advantage uh, of our bosses or companies or, or coworkers if they're Christians. In fact, um, if we work with and for other Christians, because they're dear to us, the faith, love, and brotherhood which unite us in Christ should be, should be the motivation that we would serve them well. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so whatever we do includes our work. Whether we're the, whether we're the CEO of a, a major corporation or we're just starting out in our first part-time job, a biblical view of work is that what we do at our jobs is is more about than just more is more than just making money. So, um, <laughs> what if your boss is uh, well? What if your boss is a jerk? And what if you have a bad boss? What if you have a bad business partner or board or. What if you don't trust the authorities that God has placed in your life? And I think students, you're, you're not off the hook. I think this applies to you as well. I believe this is applicable to, to giving honor to your teachers. And that doesn't mean that you stop evaluating what they're teaching and you just believe them blindly, but, but that you would respect their position as one that is God-given. If we have an angry boss, we may be tempted to return anger for anger. If we have a lazy leader... Uh, we, we probably won't want to work very hard. We will bristle at every command if we think that we know more um, than our employer. So I think it's human nature to resist poor leaders. And as Americans especially, we value, we value independence and freedom and, and the right to free speech, especially the right to, to criticize. And so I think we really struggle with, with following anyone who we judge to be not worthy. So We've all heard the motto: um, "Respect is earned," right? Sure, it's easy to respect those who have earned your respect. Paul is talking about honoring others when it's hard. And so, where do we get the strength? Where do we get the the, the encouragement to honor people in this situation? Turn with me to Exodus twenty-one, one. Exodus twenty-one, verse one. Let's go back. Back to the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai, where God declares, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost. Uh, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. I think it's interesting to recognize that the master and the slave have this, have this great relationship. Um, it's a relationship of a good and honorable master and a servant who loves him. There's no hint of conflict uh, between the master of the house and the slave. And the seven years here represent the fulfillment of the slave's debt. The six years of service correspond to uh, the six days of creation and the six days of work. The seventh year corresponds to God's resting from his creative work uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. It also uh, corresponds to the Sabbath day. Uh, the Sabbath day of rest given in, uh, in the Ten Commandments. And so the slave has fulfilled the requirement. He's, requ- he's fulfilled the required length of service of a slave. The slave has, in other words, he's fully met the demands of the law. Note that the slave who has been married by his master, he's, he's free to leave. But if he loves his wife and his children and his master, he can choose to stay forever. The slave, having worked for six years, uh, he's met the demands of the law, and he's free to leave, but he's also free to stay. If he leaves, however, he can't stay with his loving master, with his loving bride, and the children who bear his his image. And so, even though the the slave is now as free as the master is, he chooses to become part, uh, to become a servant for the sake of his bride, for the sake of his children, and for his constant love for his generous master. And lastly, if the slave who wants to stay under his master's roof uh, with the wife and children, his master is provided for him, he must be pierced by his master in order to stay. And he would wear a ring in his ear as a permanent memento of this event. The slave gives up his freedom and he's pierced by his master in order to remain with his master and his bride and his children. Scripture says forever. And so, who is the slave who fulfills the law? It is Jesus who became a servant, who is a slave who loves his master and never wants to depart from his presence. It is Christ, our Lord and our God, who is the husband and head of the house, who is pierced by his master for his bride's sake as well as for the sake of their children. It is Jesus who is the husband and head of the church, whom he calls his bride and whom God the Father uh, and the children whom God the Father has given to him. Turn over to Philippians 2.1. This is Paul's letter to uh, the Philippian church, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of all things. But Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we honor flawed leaders, we are following Jesus, uh, who honored many flawed leaders in his life, many flawed authority figures in his life, and honored his parents as well who were not perfect. In him, we have the power to submit to harsh leaders in our own lives because he himself became a servant to us. He served us freely when we had no right to that service, and his service was far greater than than anything we give back or give to anyone else. Now he asks that we would serve him in our work and our submission to our leaders. Jesus is the king who became a slave. So be encouraged, be comforted, knowing that in the same way, uh, we as followers of Christ are to be slaves in Christ, slaves to Christ, being of the same mind and spirit. We're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, because Christ did it for each of us. Paul tells Timothy, as the body of Christ, we're to, we're to honor our widows. We went through that in 1 Timothy 5, 5-3. Uh, uh, honor the elders of the church. We looked at that last week, 1 Timothy five seventeen, And this week, to honor those who are our masters. And so Peter connects honoring, honoring others and being a servant or a slave of Christ. Uh, if you want to jump to 1 Peter 2-9, 1 Peter 2.9, he says, he calls all believers, to, uh, he calls them a, a royal priesthood. And this is a reference to Exodus 19.6, uh, where God expresses to Moses at Mount Sinai that he has brought, Egil, e- <laughs> he has brought Israel into such a close relationship with him uh, by rescuing them from Egypt that their access to him is priestly. Peter is saying that, that in the same way, Christ's conquering of death has rescued both Jew and Gentile from our slavery, not out of Egypt, but out of sin. And so as priests, we are to offer sacrifices of praise by proclaiming the greatness of Christ who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Like when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, uh, we who are in Christ are are brought, um, we have been rescued from, from darkness and death into light and eternal life. Uh, Peter continues in verse, verse 16, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters, and with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And so it's because we are a royal priesthood that we've been prepared to serve as Christ serves. Peter says that in our freedom from sin, we can live as slaves to God. Let me say that again. In our freedom from sin, we can live as slaves to God. And both Paul and Timothy, Epaphras, James, Peter, Jude, they all called themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, we can hear the objections, right? See, that's, that's, that's what's wrong with Christianity. Uh, the God of the Bible is just this tyrant who expects us all to be mindless slaves. Now, I, I, love, uh, I love Tolkien's Lord of the Rings uh, saga, and I, I read them as a kid. I, I liked the movies, but, but I loved the books, and I loved uh, the animated, uh, the cartoon versions in the 70s. I thought they were amazing. And so I remember being captivated when, when in The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins is this hobbit, and uh, do I, I feel like I need to explain what a hobbit is. Everyone knows what a hobbit is. Okay, okay hobbit is like a short gu- guy that's that got, got big hairy feet, and he's, and he's really like they're happy and laid back, and they eat a lot. Anyways, Anyways uh, I'm such a nerd. Okay, uh, so he encounters Gollum. So Bilbo, right, he encounters Gollum. And I remember, I remember reading that and just being amazed by it. So Gollum is this, this scrawny, kind of feral creature uh, in a loincloth, and he lives alone in this, in this hidden cave. And he's obviously crazy from, from living in isolation. He's been quarantined just way too long. And uh, he's obsessed with, with his precious, and he's really upset that he can't find it. And uh, this precious is, in fact, a very powerful artifact. It's a, it's a magic ring that grants invisibility. And in the right hands, it would give ultimate power. It would give dominion over all things, freedom to do whatever you wanted. The reality is that the ring became his master, his precious. He was enslaved to it, and it, and it completely changed him. It was a shock when, when in the story, it's revealed that he was once a happy hobbit. It had destroyed his body and his mind and his soul, and that's how sin is. It promises freedom from God's rules and even God's judgment, but it ultimately controls us, and we become slaves to sin and death. The Bible reveals that everyone is enslaved to something or someone, whether we know it or not. Scripture gives us only two options, either either you're a slave to the world or you're a slave to the God who created it. So, what directs your decisions, your affections, your behavior? What do you believe will give you meaning and joy, satisfaction? What do you possess right now that you would lie, cheat, or steal in order to, to, to preserve? If God is not the center of your life, if he does not hold your ultimate allegiance, then you have been enslaved by something or someone less satisfying than the loving God. Every slave master except God, they will fail you. Slave masters never work to satisfy their slave. And when you fail, that master can offer no forgiveness, only misery and shame. But not so with God. He, only God can satisfy. He alone has paid the ultimate price in his son in order to forgive you of all your failings. The dominion of God is a dominion of rest and grace and mercy and joy. So that Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we cry out, pierce my ear, O Lord, my master. Peter uses the lowest of all people in the eyes of the world, the slave, to show you that, that you are more free as a slave to Christ than when you are enslaved to the, to the idea of human autonomy. Because we're born, uh, because we are free from sin, from selfishness uh, in Christ, we are free to turn outward, free to turn outward and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're free to honor unbelievers as God's image bearers, to respect the role of authority given to each of them. And we're only truly free when we are slaves to God. And so this idea pushes against our culture that demands the right to do what they please, that understands liberty as freedom from responsibility. Instead, Peter says liberty is found in bondage to God. When that is correct, we can serve God. We can serve the church and we can serve others. Christian slavery, it's the antithesis to antebellum slavery. Chattel slavery declares that that some are not persons. A slave in Christ declares that every person is made in the image of God. Pray with me. Slave uh, is a beautiful word when it's connected to you. you are the good master, you have pierced our ears and we will live with you forever and that is good news God help us um, to understand that we are uh, that we should be slaves to Christ uh, that that is a good thing um, the best thing God help us to live lives that, that demonstrate our, our love for you your, your love and mercy and forgiveness in us that we would be uh, joyfully Um, proclaiming the truth of your gospel, joyfully living out lives of um, submission and lives of uh, honoring those who you have put in authority over us, God. Uh, We thank you and praise you, and uh, we love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.